Well, good night, everybody. I am good, glad to be with you tonight. It's just good stuff, isn't it? I appreciate getting to sing songs that are true. Get to be glad to be with you guys. It's just a, a great time. I do appreciate it very much. Last summer, we were going through Live Not By Lies. And as we were going through Live Not By Lies, we realized there was one chapter there about developing a cultural memory. In order to develop a cultural memory, which is what kept them together, they realized where they had come from so that they knew where they're going to. They looked back in their past. They saw what others had done under similar situations in the past, and they lived through those. That was, uh, for those of you who didn't, didn't get, uh, join us with that study, that the study was about people who had lived through the Iron Curtain, lived through that period of time right there, and how they had survived how they kept the faith through that time, and as they kept the faith through that time, how they passed that faith on to the next generation, how they, they were ultimately a part of the falling apart of the Iron Curtain. So uh, we thought the best thing for us to do, one of the things that they did was study church history. Uh, and I, I realized that church history is something we don't know a great deal about because really you say the word history, and we started, I, I, I started not to even tell you that's what we're going to do, because the word history usually turns people off. Um, I hope to be able to make it interesting enough to you that it's not a turn off. So what we're going to look at is the history of the church, why it was formed, what Jesus was doing with it, and then the different attacks on the church that were going to take away its effectiveness. And all through the centuries, there have been individual attacks and sometimes multiple attacks on the church to take away its effectiveness. So what we want to look at is what were some of those and how can you overcome them? So we want to be able to do some overcoming. Everybody okay with that? Does that sound interesting to you? Praise the Lord. All right. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. We'll go from there. Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you so much that there is such a thing as the church. Thank you for the way you're working in our lives every day. And thank you that you're in charge. Thank you that you've taken us away from fear. You didn't give us a spirit of fear, but you gave us a spirit of power, love, and of a sound mind. So help us to remain in a sound mind and understand where we came from, understand what we're doing. Thank you for what you're going to do, Father. And we'll thank you for it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right. So we're, we're subtitling this, really, I guess I'd, I could say titling it, Jerusalem Meets Rome and Finds Babylon. So what, what we're going to do is Jerusalem is obviously the center of Judaism, and the center of Judaism is where the church started. So the church got its start in Jerusalem, but it didn't stay in Jerusalem. It's going to leave Jerusalem. It's going to head out west. And as it heads out west, it's going to encounter Rome, the Roman Empire, and all the things that it finds in it. Sooner or later, the church is going to wed itself to Rome. And when it wed itself to, its Rome, to Rome, it found Babylon. Babylon became a part of the... Babylon was already part of the uh, Roman Empire. I'll say it that way. And with Babylon... Um, uniting with the Roman Empire and the church uniting with the Roman Empire, you found a real mix of things going on there. Hopefully as we get to that part of church history, you'll, you'll kind of grasp what we're talking about as we say that. Um, some people think that the church is Babylon. That, I do not believe that at all. Uh, Babylon is a completely separate situation. Um, uh, 
you can join us on Sunday mornings. We're going to talk more about that. Babylon is a creation of lust, and it's visible only such time as people give it visibility. Uh, it's like wisdom. You don't see wisdom in the Scriptures. You, you never see her, but she is the one who cries out. She's the one that calls to people. Marry up with me. Get into a relationship with me, and I'll give you all kinds of wisdom and things. I know what God's mind is. I'll unload that for you. Whereas uh, Babylon is a, uh, an adulteress who calls on men to follow her. And as people follow her, she gains prominence. You follow where I'm coming from on that? So that's, we'll talk more about that Sunday, and maybe I can make that clearer. I, I got home Sunday, and my wife said, I said, did, did, you, did you think you saw where I was going? She said, well, what did you think you were saying? <laughs> which, which always scares me. You know, I said, well, I, I thought what I was saying was, you know, there are two women in the Scriptures. She said, whoa, whoa, you said there were two women? And I thought, okay, if I didn't get that across, um, then I really have some work to do this Sunday. I hope you see there are two women. There's wisdom and there's the immoral woman. And the immoral woman is the child of Babylon. She's the mother of all that. So anyway, we get to that. Um, so Jerusalem then, when Jerusalem, the, the scripture, when uh, uh, the gospel is leaving Jerusalem, it's starting to encounter Rome. When it encounters Rome, it's encountering, encountering Roman philosophy, Roman government, Roman uh, conquest. It's encountering Grecian uh, um, philosophy, Grecian way of life. Uh, and they already had a struggle in Israel with that because there were many of the Jews went Hellenistic. Hellenistic is the word for Grecian. So they were adopting the Greek lifestyle even when the gospel was being introduced, before the gospel was introduced, even in Jesus' day, many people were adopting the Greek lifestyle. Or the, when the people came from outside of Israel, they were called Hellenists because they had adopted a Greek lifestyle and combined it with their faith in Yahweh. So the, what we want to do is try to see how that happened and how the church got um, messed up with Rome and how that decreased its effectiveness and how ultimately it got tied with Babylon. You say, how do you know it got tied with Babylon? Well, because uh, Revelation 18 is a cry of God before the destruction of Babylon, come out of her, my people. Well, you don't say come out of some place if you're not in some place. So what you can find is that the church and the commercial interests of Babylon often traveled together throughout the world, bringing the gospel, the church is bringing the gospel, and Babylon was bringing a commercial interest that sometimes blended with each other. It's hard to tell sometimes the difference between where missionaries left off and Babylon began, or where missionaries began and Babylon left off. It was sometimes was a difficult thing to say. I hope to be able to show you that and demonstrate that as we go through that study. Let's talk about now why the church? Why does he form a church to start with? Well, what is the church? And that's we're going to work our way through some of that. First of all, the church was in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. In other words, the church is not a secondary thought. It just didn't pop into his head after he realized that Israel was not doing quite what he hoped they would do. 
It was known before the foundation of the world. Where would I give you that? Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1 just for a minute. And I may not be able to give you all the verses for this tonight because we'll never get through the notes if we do that. But Ephesians chapter 1. And if you would, let's just work our way with verse 3 and down. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So, first of all, we've been blessed with all those heavenly blessings. And then look at what he says. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So who is he writing this letter to? Well, go back to Ephesians 1, 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. So who are the saints at Ephesus? That's the church at Ephesus. And that he goes on to say, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's writing to the saints and he's saying to the saints, you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. So the church was in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. However, Letter B in your outline, it is the mystery in the Old Testament, that's also called the Tanakh, and is revealed in the New Testament. There are several verses that are going to talk about how the church was a mystery, not unrevealed in the Old Testament, but here in the New Testament it's seen. Everybody's seeing what the church is. It was a mystery before, now it's not a mystery. Letter C, it's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise or covenant all the nations of the earth be blessed in your seed. Let's go to Genesis chapter 12, and then we'll look again at Genesis 15. Okay, Genesis 12. Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land I will show you. So the first thing he's going to do is show him a land. I'll make you a great nation. So here's a guy living with his wife, um, doesn't have any children, and he's saying, here, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the promise to Abraham was that all the families of the earth were going to be blessed in him. Jesus, or that ultimate Messiah, is one of the seed of Abraham. Matter of fact, one could say it is the promised seed of Abraham. All right? So that's what he was already saying was going to take place. So that he is the, the, the church is the fulfillment. It's the bringing together of all the nations of the earth in one collected group that are blessed by God Almighty. All right, I've talked to three things so far. Any comments or questions or thoughts about what we're talking about yet? Anything at all? Yes, ma'am. About 75 is best I can tell. So he's, what's that? Uh, so in four it says, that so Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him, and Abraham was 75. How about that? 75 years old. Boy, it's a good guess. <laughs> wow. I'm wonderful. All right. What, what else? Any other quick questions or comments to say about that? All right, here we go. Letter D then. It is God's gift to his son to share the kingdom of God, which he will inherit 
with him. All right. So God is giving to his son a wedding gift. I guess you could say a coronation gift. And that coronation gift is a bride. That coronation gift is you. That's what he's giving to his son for the, the nation, the world he's going to inherit. So you're going to rule and reign with his son. You are his gift, the father's gift to the son. Letter E, it is redeemed and authorized by Christ. Christ is going to buy the church. He's going to buy those people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he's authorizing them. It says, in, uh, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. So he authorized the church then to go and make disciples everywhere. So the church is an authorized vessel of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring the terms of peace to the world. He's the author, the church is the authorized vessel to bring who Jesus Christ is, to bring the message of liberation to all the nations, all right? So it's redeemed and authorized by the Christ. It is born again and empowered by the Spirit. So Jesus is giving an authority and the Holy Spirit is giving it power to carry that out in the same way the Holy Spirit gave power to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit is causing these people to be born again. Now let's just go over a reminder about the gospel. When we come into this world, we're born with an old man. That old man that's in us is the Adam that was in us to begin with. When Jesus Christ dies on the cross, he is taking that old man and nailing that old man to his own cross. When Christ is dying, you are dying with him. When you die with him, that old man in you dies. When Christ is buried, that old man is buried. When Christ is raised from the dead, he's giving you a new man in the place of that old man. You say, wait a minute, Uh, I, I still have a tendency to sin. Yes, because the nature of that old man, the characteristics of that old man is still with you in your flesh. It's been rendered inoperative. In other words, you're not condemned because of that being still there. As long as you're in this flesh, you're going to be plagued by that, the, the ways of that old man. But the old man has been crucified. He's not a new generator of sin. He's not a new condemner for you. You're not condemned any longer. That rascal's dead. You have been given a new man in you, and that new man is the one that's operative in you. That's your new energy, your new force. But you're always going to wrestle with the flesh as long as you're in this body. Fair enough? All right, so that the Holy Spirit's caused you to be born again. You are a new creature. Why? Because the old creature you were born with cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The old creature cannot go into the kingdom of God. Uh, As Jesus told John, or told Nicodemus in John 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. He's not going to see it, not going to be a part of it. And again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul shared with us that flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God. He said again in 1 Corinthians 15, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So you're going to have to go through a resurrection of your body in the same way you went through a resurrection of your spirit. Everybody follow that? All right. So it was the Holy Spirit that did that, and the Holy Spirit not only did that, but empowered you, then gifted you, and because I couldn't think of a better word, I'm just going to call it fruited you. 
I've never heard that word before. That is a prerogative of the American language. You can make any word you want to. And I, I'm exercising that prerogative. All right? So I make, make this word. If there is a word fruited, then I'm not going to take credit for it. If there's not a word fruited, then I'm going to take credit for it. Because here's what we are saying. The fruit of the Spirit has been imparted to you. The fruit of the Spirit is God's communicable attributes that have been given to you. The things that He can give you. It's love, it's faith, it's joy, it's peace, it's long-suffering. All those parts of His character have been given to you. So that Second Peter chapter 1 can say to you that because you have been partakers of the divine nature, He has given to you everything <clears throat> that pertains to life and godliness. You are fully equipped people. He's given you everything that you need for that. Everybody okay with that? So that's the Holy Spirit giving to you that. In other words, you have all the love you need. You have all the patience that you need. You have all the long-suffering that you need. If I were to say to you that a great donor has come to, let's, let's just say, Chuck's account, and he's putting into Chuck's account a million dollars an hour, and Chuck is worried about paying his light bill of $63. Matter of fact, he's concerned he's not going to be able to pay that light bill. Cautiously, he writes out a check for $63, trembling, hoping it's not a withdraw, uh, you know, it's a, what overdraft in his bank account. Not realizing that he's got a million dollars an hour coming into that account. What I'm trying to say to you is this. You can never outgive the grace of God that's being downloaded in you. You have all the endurance you need. You have all the patience that you need. You have all the love. You have all the joy. You have to write a, a, a check on that account. My dad came to uh, my grandma's house midsummer in Harrison, Arkansas, and it was a hot day. It was a day in which there was no wind moving any place. And he came in, and all the windows were open in her house. Everything. She was sitting in her chair, fanning like this, just dripping with sweat. Well, my grandfather had passed away. My grandmother had no knowledge of how the bank account worked. So as far as she knew, there can't be any more income coming in. My husband's dead. She did not know that all his benefits, everything, his, his retirement, all that, was being um, direct deposited into the account. Dad knew it, but Grandma didn't know it. So she's sitting there fanning like this, and he came in the house. And he said, Mom, what are you doing? She said, what do you mean? It's hot. I'm fanning. He said, turn the fan on. You've, you've got an air conditioner. She said, I wouldn't even think about running the air conditioner. That burns a lot of energy. He said, yeah, but it'll cool you down. She said, you don't understand. I saw what the electric bill is, and I just can't pay that. He said, what do you mean you can't pay that? You have several thousand dollars in the account. She said, no, I don't. I, I wrote a, a check last month for the, and I, did, I don't know there's anything left in it. He said, Mom, you've got a lot of money in the account. She said, no, TJ, I looked at it, and I, I wrote the last, it's, it's zero. So he looks at the bank account, and he said, Mom, you haven't put any of the deposits in here. She said, what deposits? You follow where I'm coming from? Kids, 
Don't live like a pauper when you have been given all the gifts of God. If that makes, if that makes sense, you, you're saying, I just don't have that kind of patience. Yes, you do. You're going to have to draw on the account. Yes, you are. But you do have it. You follow what I'm saying? You say, I just don't have that kind of joy. Yes, you do. That's a choice you're going to make. You can choose to draw down on the joy that is the Lord Jesus Christ, which he said he gave to you. My peace I leave with you. My joy I leave with you. He said it's yours. You can draw down on it, or you can live like a sad person, but it's your choice to do so. Is that, is that clear with everybody? All right. So when, he's, when that Holy Spirit is gifting us and fruiting us, those are the things that have been given to you. You have a gift that's been given to you by the Holy Spirit that he's expecting you to use in the local community of believers. All right, let me go further with you. It is an open witness. The church is an open witness to the wisdom of God to all the angelic host, especially the principalities and powers who have witnessed the rebellion of man and angel. To get this one, let's go to Ephesians chapter 3 for a moment. Ephesians chapter 3. Now, brothers and sisters, the reason I'm asking you to do this is because I don't like you to take anybody's word for something. You have been saved by the word of God. So you, you want the word of God to be what backs up what you believe. So Ephesians chapter 3, and let's pick up with verse 8. And read down just a little bit. Paul writes, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. That's the church. That's this bringing together of a... uh, a Gentile and a Jewish group of people together in one body. That was a new mystery. That wasn't there before, okay? Now, goes on to say this. And let me read verse 9 again. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Christ Jesus. Verse 10. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. All right, let's just, let's just get our sanctified imagination going here just a moment, okay? So you've got the throne of God, and you've got all the angelic hosts that's around that throne of God. They know what is our problem, that we in our sin, in our distrust of God, that we have been a ruined creature. We died spiritually. How will God ever take a ruined creature and turn it into something acceptable unto God? How can he do that? So the the angels are sitting watching all that's going on here. They're watching this whole testimony. Can God take ruined creatures and turn them into a people that will inherit the kingdom of God with his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ? And the answer is yes, he can. And he did it through the church. Now remember, Jesus is God come in the flesh. 
Now, the church is flesh come into divinity. Is that making sense to you? You say, well, wait a minute, I don't, I don't think we're gods. I don't think we're gods. Just hold on. Just hold on. You're in the image of God, right? You are the children of God. You are the sons of God. That's, what it's, that's just what the scriptures say is true of us. Fair, fair enough? All right. So the church is that open witness of that. The church is one showing this is what God has done. This is what God has created on this earth. It's something different from any normal human behavior. It can't happen, they are saying. Yet here it is, that God is revealing himself through the church. All right. Thoughts or comments or anything about that? All right, Chuck. Well, it is true we're adopted. Let's understand adoption. Uh, adoption doesn't mean we were foreign and taken into a, a family. The, 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 in the educational system of Greece uh, and, and um, Israel, when a child was born, matter of fact, let's, let's take a look at it. Let's go over to Galatians just a minute. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4.1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all. So um, we have children. And the child that's born in that family is going to be the inheritor of it all. He, he's, he is the inheritor of it all. That's, that's who's going to inherit all. He is the one who is the, uh, the one who's going to inherit the estate. But notice this. He doesn't differ at all from a slave. In other words, the master of that home is not giving that over to that child. Remember what makes the prodigal son a prodigal son? He's asking for his inheritance before the father dies. So before the father is actually giving up his estate, this son is asking him to give him his portion of that estate. That was a wrong thing. That's what's going to make him a prodigal son. He wasn't supposed to be asking for that. That's not, that happens only after death. Well, here you have this taking place. This, the, the, the master of that home is not going to give the home over to the child. That just isn't done. You've got to do what verse 2 says. He's under guardians and stewards <coughs> until the time appointed by the Father. So there is a time that is appointed by the Father when that son is going to go from the status of being like a slave into being a legitimate heir. He's now an adult and will be treated like an adult. That's adoption. So it's not that he's someplace else and then brought into a family or not from another family and brought into the family. As a matter of fact, the scriptures tell us that uh, John chapter one, who were born, not of the will of flesh, not of the will of man, but born of God. So in fact, we're born of God. The adoption means that we're going from one state to another state. Matter of fact, Romans chapter eight says it this way. Uh, we, the all creation is awaiting for that adoption. That is um, the, the transformation of our body where we go from this body to a new body. That's known as the adoption. 
So does that, does that help with that? So <clears throat> uh, let's, let's look at letter G then. All right. It's made up of people once completely separated from God who are now, by the gracious incarnation of the Son of God, drawn into an inseparable eternal union with Christ. Uh, we're in Galatians. Let's just go back over to Ephesians chapter 2 just for a moment. Ephesians chapter 2. It's made up of people once completely separated from God who are now, by the gracious incarnation of the Son of God, drawn into an inseparable eternal union with Christ. So let's look at Ephesians 2, 11. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace." that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit uh, or by, you know, by, to the Father. Um, so what you have, we have over here, this, this, this is the pew of all the Gentiles. You guys are all Gentiles tonight, okay? And over here, this is the pew of all Jewish people. This is the pew Jesus is in. Why? Because he's Jewish. Over here, there's a great wall of separation dividing us. And this group can't be a part of it. But what Jesus has done, by his own incarnation, he's put himself in a place where he's the Jewish Messiah and because of Abraham's covenant, he's the Gentile Messiah. And now he's bringing both of them into the middle with him where everything is at peace now. This group is at peace. This group is at peace. He's destroyed everything that was in the way that kept us from being one. Now this new man that's in Christ is the church. Everybody okay with that? All right. Good enough. All right. Let's, let's see where we can go for there. <clears throat> Letter H, the church in its intimacy with Christ is his bride, and their relationship is the model for human relationships, in particular marriage. Uh, he's going to tell us in this same book, Ephesians chapter 5, he's going to talk to husbands and wives. So he's going to say that the spirit-filled person is uh, the one who, verse 18, do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit-filled person is one who speaks to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing making melody in your heart to the Lord. The Spirit-filled person is one who gives thanks always for all things to God, the, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit-filled person is the one who submits to one another in the fear of God. Now, let's look how he's going to describe what it is to submit to one another. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to who? The Lord. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. He's the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, here's how you're going to submit. This is your submission to your wife. It is, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So what's your submission, husband? You're not master. You're not Lord. What are you supposed to be doing? You're sacrificing your life for everything she needs. That's what Jesus did for us, is it not? That's why Jesus is the picture of what a perfect marriage is. What he's done for us is a picture of the perfect marriage. He gave his life. He was serving us so that we could live. That's what the husband's supposed to do to the wife. That's his submission. You submit your life so that she gets the opportunity to live. She's being cleansed. She's being sanctified. She's being washed. This is not about roles. This is about what you're doing for your wife. This is what the wife is doing for the husband so that both of them can carry out their roles without any objection. Everybody see where we're coming from there? And that's what Jesus is doing for us. All right. All right. Let's pick up uh, verse letter I. The church will reign with Christ in the restored kingdom of God. She will live forever with him. That's what you were promised, that you're going to rule and reign with Christ. All right. Um, I think that one's plain enough. I'm not, I don't think I need to do much more proving of that one. The church is the one in whom Christ has invested his witness and wisdom. The church is the repository of the truth on earth. It is the light of the world. Uh, second, uh, first Timothy chapter three, first Timothy chapter three. Uh, did I pick the right one? Maybe I didn't. Um, yes, First Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, write, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. That's what the church is. That's what we're supposed to be. That's why we have to study the Word of God. That's why we have to interact with each other on the Word of God. That's why I have to talk about the Word of God. That's why the Word of God has to abide, abound, abide in us richly. It's got to be abide in us abundantly. We, we ought to be able to talk Christ in everything we talk about because that's what abiding in Christ means. It means those words of Christ, who Christ is, what Christ is about, that's the whole, the, the whole heartbeat of the church. That's what it's about. All right. Um, <clears throat> So Christ invested that in the church. He's left the church as the pillar and ground of truth on earth. Letter K, the church is the ambassador of reconciliation to the world. The church represents Christ on earth and presents his terms of peace prior to the Father's judgment on the earth as he delivers the kingdom to his son and makes his enemies his footstool. The Father has told the son, sit here. Until I make your enemies your footstool. When I make your enemies your footstool, then you can go back and rule the nations with a rod of iron. I'm giving you that. I'm giving you this world as yours to inherit. And we are the ambassadors of reconciliation. We're supposed to be telling the world, this is God's terms of peace. So listen to these terms of peace, follow these terms of peace, and that judgment you'll miss. Don't follow these terms of peace and the judgment you'll be a part of. Fair enough? Everybody see where, where we're coming from? At? 
All right. Um, letter L. The church is the royal priesthood to demonstrate the praises of the one who brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are to make continuous intercession for one another and for the lost sheep who have not yet met the Savior. We are to be in prayer for all men, especially those in authority. That's why the church. He's left us to do the very thing that Jesus was doing when he was here. He's left us to be the intercessors for all people. Second, First Timothy chapter 2 says just exactly that. Don't you, that this is what you do first of all, that the intercessions and giving of thanks and prayer be made for all men, especially those who are in authority. That's our task. That's what we're about. We're to be priests that show forth the praises of God who brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's what we are. That's First Peter chapter 2 uh, that, that makes such a, a bold statement as that. All right. Any questions so far? All right, letter M. The church is the living sacrifice being offered daily to God. Romans chapter 12. Now, therefore, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So the church is to be presenting that. It's a daily offering to God. Uh, I think uh, Al uses this uh, when he talks about uh, the Christian stink, I think is the way he said it, Christian stink. And what do we smell like? Well, we smell like life to those who have life, but we smell like death to those who have death as their inheritance. It's kind of like um, smelling burnt meat. You know, that's, that's what you're, you're sniffing. If it's burnt meat, you're thinking, oh, man, somebody ruined a good steak. Uh, whereas for the rest of us, we're saying, that's a burnt offering, man. That's a, that's a, a peace offering unto God. All right, All right let her in. The church is the body of Christ doing what is left of Christ to do on this earth. Christ's work on earth is not completed until he returns. Until he returns, the church is his body. We're to be filled with good works for our Father to be glorified. We do these works in the Son's name and in the way the Father would do them or has told us to do them. Let's go to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Let's go to verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So what are we supposed to be doing? Until he comes back, these are the things we're supposed to be doing. Let's go back to Ephesians just for a minute. Chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. There's that favorite passage we like to talk about. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the church is to be filled with good works to a community that is unredeemed. All right? And uh, when, when Christ comes back, those works are done. When you die, you, your works are done. 
But until then, we've been called to do good works. Then letter O in your outline, this list is by no means exhaustive, but it is a start on the things which were revealed about the church. The church is living, mobile, and dynamic, so its work will always be contextual to the region it enters. You can't always have the same rules with every um, region that you enter. Uh, every, every time you go into a new place, you're going to have to contextualize things in that place. You say, wait a minute, you mean water down the gospel? No, I don't mean water down the gospel at all. It has nothing to do with water down the gospel. There are things that uh, we practice at the Edgemont Bible Church that you probably wouldn't practice in India. We're not the same culture. Not everything we do here can be duplicated in India. Um, uh, there was, when I, when I, the, the first trip I made over to India, um, talking with the, the man that we were with, the, the man who was sponsoring us on the trip there, I observed that every place Indian men walked, the, walk, the wife was always several steps behind. It was odd to see them walking side by side. And I, I noticed that even, um, well, I, I will say that right now, just come but walking several steps behind. Well, we took a, a bus trip up to um, Darjeeling. That's way up in the mountains in uh, the north of India. And on the way back down the mountain, and no, that's, a, that's a scary ride in and of itself. That thing is such a narrow road, it's just incredible, and you're taking this big bus, and it's, well, anyway, we're on our way back, and the, the man that was our sponsor was sitting with me, and he said, what do you think the Bible teaches about marriage? So I have my Bible there, and we're opening it up, we're reading it together, and he said, we don't, we don't understand that at all. We don't know what that means. I said, I, I'm sorry, I, I guess I just assumed that marriage is marriage the world around, and everybody does marriage the same way. Well, that's not the way it was. Uh, so we talked a good long while about what the Bible teaches about marriage. Well, he and his wife started studying the Bible together, started reading some books together, and they started saying, wait a minute, the things that we know in India about marriage are not the same as what they know in the Scriptures. So they began to teach the Scriptures to the pastors and their wives. Guys, it was incredible what took place after that. The wives and the husbands began to cry, saying, we didn't know these things. We didn't know that's what's supposed to happen. Now, they're not going to duplicate Edgemont Bible Church. Everybody understand what I'm going to say? But they are going to start trying to find a, a way to put this way of living into what they were doing. And it changed so many things. So many wives said, I've never felt this free in my life. This is the most wonderful thing. They said, I am so glad to be a Christian because Christian actually liberates you. Now, it doesn't if you've got guys still teaching that, you know, the, the woman's submission means that she's beaten on ground and all that. That's nonsense. That's, that's, that's cruelty. That's not what the Scriptures teach at all. But they started talking about how great it was that they're all now starting, and they started loving each other, actually loving each other. And the husband started realizing that the context of where we live uh, doesn't permit us to have conversation like that. 
Then they started having real conversation. And guys, I'm just telling you, it changed what those cultures were in the churches. So anyway, you, you can't necessarily take what you're doing here and get, put it over there, but you can bring the scriptures there and let them figure out how to make an application of it in their, their culture. Everybody okay with that? You see what we're saying? All right. Any comments or questions about why the church? All right, let's just let's go through this. Creating the environment. Now, uh, I want you to take a look at another verse with me, would you? Let's go to Galatians chapter 4 just for a minute again, where we were just a few moments ago, where it says that, uh, let's start with verse 1 again. Now, I say that the heir, as long as he's a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he's master of all. Even though he's the inheritor and he's, he's actually going to be over the slave someday, He's, he's no better than the slave because he's being under, verse 2, he's under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so we, verse 3 says, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. We were still having to be taught. We were not mature yet. But watch what he says. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now, hang on a minute. Let's take a look at this. He says that Jesus was born at a time when the Father said, the fullness of times has come. So, guys, whatever the conditions were at that time, they're considered by God to be the fullness of times. They're to be the right time for Jesus to be born. So let's take a look just a little bit contextually at what that was. Let's take a look at the setting. He, it, uh, where, where are they? They are in the middle of the earth. That's what God calls Israel. That's the center of the earth. It's the land God chose for the descendants of Abraham who, to whom he promised it. It's a land that had been war-torn and occupied by four different nations by conquest for over 500 years. So uh, that's, that's what the people are living by. They're, they're living in a, a war-torn situation where they've been under occupation by somebody for 500 years. They've not been free people. This is, even though they are living in the land of promise, they've lived under somebody else's oppression. Next thing, second temple's rebuilt and a traditional ritual faith is being practiced. The second temple was rebuilt. It got finished. But guess what? The Shekinah glory never came to that temple. It came to Solomon's temple. It came to the tabernacle when it was finished. The Shekinah glory came in and blessed that area, sanctified that area. But it did not do it for the second temple. The second temple, as far as we know, did not contain the, alt the altar of covenant. Or is that say that right? Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. It did not contain the Ark of the Covenant. It wasn't in there. They're not sure what happened to it. They're not sure whether Jeremiah took it with him when he went down to Egypt, and now it's been deposited. The Ethiopians swear they have it. Um, that when when it was brought down by Jeremiah, it was given to them for trust, and they took it that back to Ethiopia. Do they have it or not? You'll have to ask Indiana Jones. I don't know where that ark is, you know, but maybe he can find it for us. But the second temple's been built, but it doesn't have the same blessing on it. It's pretty, but it may not be near what Solomon's temple was. Whether it was or it isn't, the temple's not about aesthetics. The temple is about the presence of the Lord. 
And if the Lord's presence wasn't there, then you just have a facade. All right. Let's go on further. They are ruled by a treacherous Edomite. That's Herod. Herod was an Edomite. All right. And a resentful Roman governor. That's Pontius Pilate. Uh, he didn't want to be there. He didn't like being in, in Israel. He thought it was a nasty country. Political intrigue is happening all the time. Some groups are trying to overthrow the Roman rulers, and assassinations take place often. Um, There's a whole group of people that were called the, the assassins, and they went around trying to stab people. That's the way they took care of them. They would um, carry a dagger around with them all the time, and when they'd find a, uh, a leader in the Roman army, they'd just jab him with that spear or that sword. Or, I'm sorry, say, um, yeah, knife, and they'd go away. Um, some groups are trying to overthrow the Roman rulers. Assassination is taking place often. People rebel at the presence of the Romans in the holier sites of Jerusalem, so protests are not uncommon. So when the Jewish people saw Roman soldiers walking around in their holy, holy places, that offended them. You dirty Gentiles should not be in our clean place, so you're going to see protests popped up. And that was not at all unusual. There were times that the Roman governors just slaughtered people because they were protesting. So that's the world they're living in. And he calls it the fullness of times. <laughs> okay? Um, the temple priests are more secular than religious. They're seeking power from the government. The Sadducees uh, were the, a group of temple priests. They were the, the inheritors of the temple. But they had become so secular in the way they did things, they were just looking for somebody to give them power all the time. So they are always doing politically right moves rather than those things that were, were good. So what you had was a number of people living in Jerusalem seeing what the Sadducees were and seeing how poor that was. They were getting out of Dodge. They were going to live out in the wilderness. Well, I think I'll say that just a few minutes here. So um, the temple priests are more secular than religious. They're seeking power from the government. Pharisees are self-appointed, holy separatists. Now, the word Pharisee means divided or separated. Um, it's found in the word um, uh, when um, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson is celebrating in the, the dining hall using the temple furniture and the temple vessels. And remember that at that night, a finger came down and wrote on the wall. And what it said is, mene, mene, tekel, eupharsin. That word farsin, that is this word. It means weighed and weighed and found wanting, kingdom torn. So this word Pharisee meant to tear away from something. So the Pharisees were a group of people, not Levites. You could be a Levite, but that's not what made you a Pharisee. Uh, Paul said he was a Pharisee. He was born of Benjamin. That's not a Levite. You, you don't have a legal standing there. But because they studied the Word of God and because they lived with the, the scholars who were the inheritors of Ezra, Ezra the scribe, the scribes and the Pharisees often were buddies together, and that's the lawyers that were together. The Pharisees became the teachers of the law. They are going to be what's known as rabbis later. They are the forerunners of rabbinical Judaism that you have today. Because once the temple was gone, 
the Sadducees had no office left at all. There had no sacrifices they could do. They had nothing left to do. And what you were left with was rabbinical Judaism. So the rabbis continued in the synagogues teaching. So the synagogues were going to replace the temple, and the rabbis are going to replace the priests. That's what you have today, rabbinical Judaism. Fair enough? Questions, comments, thoughts about that? Uh Uh-huh. Yes. Who's the what? Pontius Pilate. Yep, yep. Good question. Thank you. All right, so these, yes. Levites. Yes, they were, they were sons of Aaron. Um, when uh, Solomon became king, Abiathar, the real high priest, had followed uh, the Adonijah. Adonijah declared himself to be king, and Abiathar the priest went with him to coronate Adonijah. Well, David was offended by that, and he ended Abiathar's office. Abiathar was one of the children of Eli, one of the descendants of Eli. And the scriptures said there's already a curse on Eli. You'll never have someone to be in the, uh, to last long in any of the priesthood. Abiathar's son was Zadok. And Zadok became the high priest from that point on. So every one of Zadok's children were going to be those who were the high priests in the family line all the way up to the time of Jesus. The descendants of Zadok are called Zadokses, Sadducees. So that's who they are. They're the sons of Aaron that are the sons of Zadok, the high priest in David's day. All right. So... That's a a good question. Thank you for that. Um, The Pharisees, self-appointed holy separatists, rule over the people by the authority of their teaching and are becoming the sole and only accepted teachers of Torah and their version of it in their study notes. Uh, So it's kind of like they created their own MacArthur Study Bible, uh, but it had notes all around it, and those notes all around it became more important. matter of fact, the notes that were around the text are what was known as the traditions of the elders. So when you see Jesus saying, why do you have these traditions? It's the study notes that were written by the rabbis, the Pharisees, that are around the biblical text. This is their interpretation of that biblical text. And Jesus said, you're making my father's word of no effect because you're saying that your words around his words are more important than his words. Well, they got around it by saying, but we heard it from Moses. What do you mean you heard it from Moses? That's called the oral tradition. When they would study the word, they believed that Moses was coming to teach them this word, and Moses was explaining to them the word, and they were just writing down Moses' words. That's how you got to see what's known as the Talmud. That's, That's what they were following then as the traditions, all right? So they were gaining more and more authority with the people all the time because they were teaching in the synagogues. They, were the, they had the high seats in the synagogues, all right? Um, let's go down to 
let's see, they, they became the only accepted teachers of Torah and their version of it in their study notes. In only a few years, they'll become the rabbinical Judaism that's the forerunner of modern Judaism. Through them, traditions ran rampant. Uh, run rampant. How about that? Some of the people have abandoned the city religion, in other words, the, the religion of Jerusalem, that had all the Pharisees and all the Sadducees in it and all of their discussions and all their big schools and all their major synagogues. People were abandoning that because they saw corruption in it and they were going out to the wilderness areas. So uh, they were, um, let's see, with its corruption have established communities of rigid Torah practice away in the wilderness areas. Some of these groups uh, you'll know were the Ebionites. Some of them were the Essenes. It's believed that John the Baptist was one of the Essenes. But these are people who left the community. They, they left the city religion and went out to the, the wilderness area to practice the rigid uh, Torah. Messianic rumors have been followed for nearly 200 years, and a strong Messianic hope is alive in all the people to one degree or another. Uh, anybody ever read the Left Behind series? Ever hear the Left Behind series? What kind of effect did the Left Behind series have on the people at that time? Anybody remember anything about it? Do you know what the, how many of you don't know what the Left Behind series is? Okay. You, you don't know it? You, you have read it? Okay. Uh, the Left Behind series then, what's that? <laughs> the Left Behind series gave people an idea of what the tribulation is going to be. There was also another group of books that was called, uh, what, uh, This Present Darkness, maybe? There were, there were three books that came out. What? Frank Peretti's books, right. They came out. And they had a strong effect on the way people felt about spiritual warfare. The last, uh, the Left Behind series had a strong effect on people who felt uh, strongly about the, uh, the last days. John Walford wrote books about the last days. Uh, Charles Ryrie wrote books about the last days. Chuck Smith was preaching about the last days. Uh, the whole Jesus movement came out of Chuck Smith preaching out of Calvary Chapel, and people were getting baptized out in the Pacific Ocean. Matter of fact, it's from there Maranatha music came. That became all the praise songs that you've probably sung lots of times. That was Saved Rockers. Rockers got saved. They started then going to Chuck Smith's church, and they were creating songs that you now call praise music or Maranatha music. There were a lot of things going on at that time. How did that affect churches? Well, if you consider that, think what it would be like if you have the same thing going on 200 B.C. You've got Messianic literature coming out in 200 B.C., you have the book of Enoch coming out in 200 B.C. You've got lots of uh, Messianic writings coming out in 200 B.C. The Essenes are writing Messianic literature. So you've got all these different groups writing Messianic literature, and the communities are reading them. If you, if you get what I'm saying, it affected the way people thought about when is Messiah coming? Is Messiah coming? What's the hope we have? So there was a mindset if you follow me, there was a mindset being developed of Messiah coming. So when he says in the fullness of times, it's because that's what's going on. You have people who are looking for it. They're expecting a Messiah. All right. Let, let me go on further with you because I, I don't want to take up all your time there with it. <clears throat> um, 
Messianic rumors have been followed for nearly 200 years, and the strong Messianic hope is alive in all the people to one degree or another. Some uh, just poo-pooed the whole idea, and they're still discussing the fact that a Messiah could come, but they're saying, that's nonsense. People have been saying that forever. There's not going to be a Messiah coming and so forth, but you're still getting a Messiah discussed. All right? Then further, they're usually fed by Messianic literature that shows up from time to time. Many people have grown hopeless during that time that anything is ever going to change because as much as the literature come out, uh, how many times have, has the church of Jesus Christ? Now, maybe I've just been around too long and I, I, I've seen things. Uh, I came through 1967 and 73 where there was a big Jesus movement going on and there was a lot of Messianic literature. I came through the same period of time in which so many people were saying Jesus is coming in this date. He's coming on this date. He's coming on this date. 88 reasons why Jesus is coming in 1988. Then 89 reasons why Jesus didn't come in 1988. It It went on like that. And people were always predicting something until there was just an absolute exhaustion with it. People were tired of hearing about it. Don't say that anymore. And they lost hope. That same kind of thing is going on there. So just imagine what's going to happen when the people who had lost that hope hear on a special night a bunch of angels or a bunch of shepherds coming around and saying, hey, we just got talked to by a bunch of angels, and it was like a big deal. And we have now gone to where the angels told us to go, and we have seen him. The Messiah has been born. Just imagine what that's going to happen to people's thoughts because they had lost hope that it was going to happen even though they retained the thought it was going to happen. So here now, shepherds come along and they start saying, this is what happened. This is what we saw. Well, let me go on. Um, At the same time, John the baptizing one showed up on the scene calling for repentance and announcing the kingdom of God is near as its king further enhancing the high messianic hopes. So that's taking place. Additionally, floating in this environment is the Grecian philosophers, the Grecian and Roman lifestyles, the mystical religions of the Middle East. Many have caved into the Greco-Roman culture and have abandoned Judaism as lifeless. It is into this mix that the Lord Christ, the Son of God, is born as Jesus of Nazareth in lowly descent. Does that sound familiar to any of you at all? Does that sound like today? If if you follow where I'm coming from, what's the difference in now and then? You still have people who think Messiah is coming back, and another group of people who say, they've been saying it for a thousand years, so stop. I don't want to hear about it anymore. You still have people that are following Greco-Roman ways. you got crazy philosophy being followed. you got people reviving pagan religions. I mean, good grief, you can get back into Norse gods. You can get back into uh, all the Irish gods. You can get back into all kinds of things. It's all alive and well. This is a perfect time for the church to re-accept its Savior, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, if, if that makes any sense. Well, let's go on to the timing. What time I got here? I got to quit. Uh, the timing. Daniel the prophet had been given a time for the people to look for the Messiah. He had passed it on in his book of prophecy. For those prophecy buffs alive at the time, they would know that time is very near. So it was within 400 years that the Messiah was supposed to come. Daniel had said that. Messiah, that there's got to be 400 years, then a Messiah is going to be coming. So they knew that. So all you have to do is start counting up. Well, it's got to be near. 
just like Daniel had done. Daniel had read the prophet Jeremiah and said it was going to be 70 years. He starts counting up and say, listen, I left when I was here. Wait, wait a minute. That 70 years has to be up. So whatever our delivery must be coming. So this is going to happen here as people read that. Political unrest is fomenting as it has been for the last 200, for at least 200 years already, always waiting for an opportune expression. Several greater or lesser messiahs had showed up and withered back down in failure. Messianic literature is being read or listened to, especially among those less privileged. There are no solid sources of information. It is all biased, mixed with truth and error. The Romans are oppressive and arrogant, believing the Roman way is civilized, and these people are pagans or followers of a depraved religion. So they had a bias toward the Jews. The Jews feel ethnically superior and exceptional as God's chosen people. They thought their chosen status would keep them above these kinds of trouble. Now they sense God has rejected them. They're still under domination, have been for about 500 years. They are on their own now. If they're going to be free, they're going to have to do it themselves. Groups of people are flocking to the wilderness where ascetic groups are following Torah and having visions, seeking hope for the future. Many have gone to John the baptizing one to join with others into a messianic community. A sharp divide is coming between the more formal Jews of Jerusalem and the rural Jews of Galilee and other rural areas as well as the Samaritans. In other words, it's the, if I can say it's the reds and the blues. It's, it's the rednecks and the city folk. They're, they're having a battle with one another. They're having a, a breakdown. Okay. Um, the sharp divides coming between the more formal Jews of Jerusalem. They feel they're more cultured than the rednecks who live in Jews of Galilee and the other rural areas as well as Samaritans and those outside the borders of Israel. Tension is felt all over the land. It is just right to bring in the Messiah of hope and the offer of eternal life. Okay, So it's the right time for it. Well, uh, my time's almost gone. You, you've got that material that you find there. Let me go over to the back side here. All right, let's take that. Take a look at that. I'm just trying to demonstrate that the time was right for Messiah to come. Then, um, taking from Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, God forms the church. Jerusalem is the capital of the new covenant community. Rome is going to be the capital of paganism. If, well, I should say hedonism. I guess I'll say heathenism. Um, so you had a group that's foretelling the coming of Messiah. That's the prophets. You had a group that's proclaiming his coming. That's John the baptizer. That is the angels. That's the magi. So you've got a whole group that's proclaiming his coming. You had a group that was foretelling it, another group that's proclaiming it. Then you had the incarnation itself. Jesus is now born and he's living among people and he's doing things that only God could do. He's confirming the work of God. And while he's at it, the life of Jesus the Christ, the Shekinah glory is once again walking among men but it's shielded by the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not seeing that. The only time you got to see that was when Peter, James, and John went with Jesus into the mountain that's called Transfiguration, and there the shield of his flesh is broken back, and you get to see the Shekinah glory. So what you have is Shekinah glory walking through the land as it had been earlier. 
So here is Jesus, the kind of glory. Uh, Jesus is reliving and perfecting the life of Israel. He's going to redo all the journeys that Israel made. He's going to redo the Exodus. He's, he's doing things the right way. He's reintroducing law. The Sermon on the Mount is the reintroduction of the law in a better way. He's confirming the work of God. He's setting up the next great Exodus. Um, so Jesus is, in essence, the Moses that was promised. Moses said, a prophet like me will come. Jesus is that prophet who was going to introduce the law and introduce the next exodus. At the same time, he's handpicking and training small group leaders to carry on the work after his departure. He goes to get the final home ready for his bride. Letter F. He's demonstrating true servant leadership and teaching them to model it. He's showing what it means to be a servant leader, and now he's teaching them how to do it. Gang, that is the work of the church of Jesus Christ. It's to demonstrate servant leadership and then model it, teaching people how to do it so that when and if we have to be broken up, we already have people who know how to do servant leadership. I, I'm assuming that the time is going to come when we are going to be broken up into smaller groups. It may just come at a time when we maybe maybe gas will become too unaffordable. Maybe we won't be able to make it. Uh, maybe uh, there'll be some new law passed that pr- forbids the meeting together. I don't have any idea, but I do know that we need to know how to create small groups ourselves so that we can meet together and still encourage each other just like they did behind the Iron Curtain. Does that, does that make sense? All right. All right. Uh, they are paying the price for the debt. Jesus, uh, by his crucifixion, canceled the legal debt owed to God by people. It was paid in full. He's canceling the old man and that old order of things and creating a new man, so for a new order of things. The resurrection then is giving life to a new people. The new order of creation has begun. So there is a new group of people that's coming out. When he ascends to the Father, it's further proof of his deity. And then he gathers the outcasts of Israel to Jerusalem. That's Pentecost. Jesus selects the time. God the Father selects the time when he's going to introduce how to form the church. And he does it by bringing everybody together at Pentecost. Then tongues are the reversing of the effects of Babel. What did he do at Babel? In other words, he gave tongues at Babel. People are now speaking languages they can't understand. Now that confused them. Now, here at Pentecost, you have a group of people standing up and speaking in the very languages that they had been scattered out to. So now you are hearing the gospel proclaimed in the languages that had dispersed everybody and you had confusion from it. Now you have order brought back to it. Does that make sense? You see where we're coming with that? That's what that was for or one of the things it was for, and there's several other things, obviously. The gospel is preached to all the world with confusion gone. Now, by that we mean there were representatives from way back over in the east all the way through, over all the way to Tarshish. So you could take a, draw, a, a line and draw it right from over on the, let's say, Afghanistan, Pakistan, maybe Pakistan better. You can draw a line from Pakistan all the way straight through to Spain, And in Acts chapter 2, you see them saying that the people were there from this place, this place, this place, this place, this place, this place, and this place. 
and each of them heard the gospel in their own language. So now you're having the, the effect of Babel brought back again, and you're having the gospel now being understood by all people from all different countries. Um, the Holy Spirit forms a new community of people with a new lifestyle. That's Acts chapter 2, verses 40 and following. And then small group leaders are getting ready to assume a worldwide role. So what he did, he put all those small group leaders together in a group, and now they're learning how to lead people in their own group. Everybody follow that? Okay. Long time. Thank you. I appreciate your um, staying with me. You're good people. All right. Awana is about over. Questions or thoughts, comments about what we've tried to share with you tonight? Now, what we're going to study now is now that this community has been formed, now that this small group has now become a little bit larger group and they're going to be split up into small groups again, how are we supposed to live and what attacks came to those groups that could have divided them, could have rendered them ineffective? What things happened to them, and how did they get through them? How can we know to avoid those same kind of errors for ourselves? How can we be that kind of people? Any thoughts or comments there? Chuck. False teachings teachings did come through, um, and they had to fight them. Matter of fact, uh, many of the epistles are written just to offset the false teachers that were coming in. Okay. All right. Well, let's look to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you and praise you. You're such an awesome God. Thank you so much for the love of God that you put in our hearts for creating in us a new community of believers. Thank you for giving us a purpose. Thank you for giving us a a life worth living. We know that you have great things you want to accomplish yet in this world, and that you've given us an assignment to do until you return. So help us to occupy until you return. Tonight, Father, we lift up Sue. We ask in Jesus' name you'll minister grace and healing and strength to her. You'll give Rich much uh, compassion to deal with his wife and to help her along with the struggle she has. We ask that you dissipate anything in her body, Father, that represents a, a problem to the well-working of that body. We pray the same for Misty, asking you to help her and give her the strength that she needs. Thank you for what you're going to do, Father, and the way that you work with all of us here. Thank you for Awana. And thank you for all the great kids who got to come out tonight. We ask in Jesus' name you guide all our workers to help them have compassion on these young men and women and to teach them the Word of God. Thank you for what you're doing in us now. In Jesus' name, amen.